if you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it, that there are more selfish people than selfless people. It is easy to fall into this trap because that's how traps work. They are designed to bring you in and keep you there. The antidote to this comes when you realize that the world isn't full of traps. It's full of goodness, a goodness that far outweighs the bad. Every day there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. Just as the saying goes, iron sharpens iron. We draw in strength from service, and our service spreads strength to others. The people who spread that strength often blend in with the noise of the world. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. We refuse to listen to the noise, and we want to spread our common goodness by telling the stories of service of everyday people from our citizen servants. This is the Strength from Service Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Strength from Service. And uh, with me today, Jake Palmer, also, uh, of course, Jack Zimmerman, Mike McLaughlin. Good morning, fellas. How are we? Good, good. How are you doing today? Real good, real good. Our special guest today is actually... Jack Zimmerman. Jack Zimmerman. How about that? Uh, and uh, his amazing story. Um, first of all, I hear you wrote a book. Can people buy that book? Is that uh, possible? How, how does that work? Yeah, the best way uh, The best way to buy the book is uh, three. It's uh, called three, uh, 5 Minutes, 300 Seconds That Changed My Life. And uh, the best way to buy it is go to my website, jackzimmermanmn.com. Or uh, you can grab it off Amazon or any of those places like that. Sure, sure, for sure. And it's a uh, it's a fantastic book. I have one autographed by the author, which makes it uh, you know more special, <laughs> obviously. So uh, if I sell it someday, you know, I'll get much <laughs> yeah. more for it. Yeah, yeah. I would money. never, I would Big never money. part with it. Yeah, I would never part with it. Come on now. Um, so today we're gonna uh, we're gonna tell your story, aren't we? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I, I share my story for a living. Um, I'm a motivational speaker. That's what I do now. And uh, uh, ended up uh, writing the book uh, because of this little thing called COVID hit. <laughs> and uh, it uh, made, uh, as a motivational speaker, it made life really difficult to uh, get everybody to gather around and, uh, you know, share a story. So uh, that's when I decided to uh, take all these lessons that I was talking about through my motivational speaking and put them into a book and, and uh, make it so if somebody couldn't actually come out and hear me or, or uh, you know, I can't tell all the details, you know, in, a, in an hour of speaking, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was, really, it was a really interesting process to write the book, and I'm really glad I did it. And because uh, someday I won't always be here to tell my story, you know. Right, true. It's very, it's uh, it's very true that uh, you did that, and we're glad you did too. It's a, yeah. it's a great story. It's a great book. Uh, if you haven't read that book, we highly suggest you do. Uh, today we'll give you a, you know a little bit more of a, a shorter version of it uh, here on the show as well. And I'd, I'd give yourself a little bit more credit than saying you do this for a living because you were sharing your story with people around the community and people that you've developed relationships with over time uh, and helping impact them kind of in that mutual service to the community too. And I think putting words in your mouth, but you know, I think the the feedback and the, the positivity you saw in sharing that story said, Hey, maybe more people need to hear this story. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, 
you know, not only do I find that others find value out of the things that I learn going through my experiences and such, but uh, it's also good for me as well, you know, to go out and share my story. And every time I do tell my story, it's a reassurance for me that I wouldn't have changed anything different that day. You know, I wouldn't have, um, you know, uh, if I would have done this, things would have been different or whatever. You know, I mean, I did everything uh, that day I would have done, you know, tomorrow, you know, and so it just reminded me that, uh, life just happens and we have to live with it. And, um, you know, life isn't, life is what you make it. It's not, um, you know, what's dealt to you. Yeah. Well, and, and before we get into, uh, the service piece, I guess a little history on, on Jack, he's a, a native of uh, Cleveland, Minnesota, grew up in that area, uh, went to school and graduated from, uh, Cleveland high school. Barely. Uh, barely. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah. D's get degrees <laughs> yeah, in high school, right? right? Yeah, they say C's, but D's too as well. Uh, went off and enlisted uh, in the army. Uh, served in Afghanistan as an eleven Bravo infantryman. So we got a couple of infantrymen yeah. uh, hosts here in the room, which is always nice to be around. O threes and elevens. Deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, was wounded there. Was a recipient of the Purple Heart and yeah. the Combat Infantry Badge. Yeah. Uh, moved back home. Married your fiance Megan. Uh, now you have two children, Ben and uh, William. Yep. I can't remember which one's the oldest. Uh, William's the oldest. William's yeah. the oldest. Yep. Uh, uh, volunteer uh, trap coach too in town. Uh, volunteer a lot of things. Uh, worked with a lot of service clubs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Race car uh, team owner. Yeah, uh, I mean motivational speaker and uh, you know overall good dude. Uh, so going back to the beginning, uh, what was life growing up like in Cleveland? Yeah, I mean uh, when I think about growing up in Cleveland, uh, I think of a couple things. Uh, in the summertime, all we did was ride our bikes around town. I found, mm-hmm. It was always everybody rode their bikes around until we found everybody, and then we played basketball all day at the basketball courts. I feel like that was uh, my youth growing up as a kid in Cleveland. And uh, you know, as I got older, it uh, we could drive around more. We ended up finding ourselves at the lakes and things like that more often. And and uh, but I played sports all the way through high school. I played football. Um, I enjoy playing football. I love playing basketball. Um, worked all the way through high school, you know, G and K rental, you know, putting up tents, oh, yeah. hauling tables and chairs around, uh, with my, but the whole thing was I started learning at a young age. It didn't really matter what I was doing as long as it was the people that I was around, you know, that's really what mattered. I, I mean, I could have the worst job in the world, but if I was with my buddies all day, I didn't care, you know, I started learning that as a, as a kid, you know, and, uh, I ended up graduating high school and, and I thought I wanted to be an electrician. So I went to Albert Lee for a year, and as I was working down in Albert Lee, um, I got a job working at the Justice Center for Hunt Electric. They were just building that. And I started working there, and I I loved it. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, the second year of school came around, and and we're still working on the Justice Center. And I thought, why would I go back to school Mm -hmm. if I'm already doing what I want to be doing? This just seems dumb so yep and i never never really was big into school anyway so that was an easy decision so i kept working and uh while i was working there um as electrician um i enjoyed every minute of it like i said but i had been watching the war go on for some time now you know it almost been 10 years what time this is 2008 roughly so we're coming out of right in the iraq surge and afghanistan yeah you're kind of right in that coming off the iraq surge you know and and uh you're watching all that go on not not even really knowing a whole lot about it i didn't know afghanistan was about to surge but i seen all this was going on and uh I, heard, I talked to so many people before that said, you know, they were 30, 40 years old, whatever, and said, hey, I wanted to join, but I never did because X, Y, Z, you know. And I heard a lot of regret in their voices, you know, and I had always wanted to serve. Um, I really didn't have anybody close to me that had served before. Um, I didn't really have anybody I could ask, like, hey, how do I get in, this mm-hmm. or that. And uh, 
I always heard these horror stories about going to a recruiter and getting signed up for something that you didn't want to do. And then I kind of found out I was signing up for the thing that I wanted to do the thing that nobody wanted to do. So (laughs) it wasn't that big of a deal, really. So uh, I uh, I was sitting at work one day and there's a guy across from me sitting there talking about, um, you know, his shoulder hurting. And there's a guy sitting next to him talking about. Um, you know, is retiring and the other guy's talking about this and I was probably hung over and I was like, I got to get out of here. You know, I need more excitement in my life. How do I, how do, what, what am I going to do? And the rest of the day I was working and finally work was just about out and I said, I'm going to join the army. And I left work that day. I went straight to the mall. I went to the recruiter station and I said, Hey, I want to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. I want to get there as fast as I can. I want to be on the front lines. What do I do? And the guy's like, don't move. <laughs> Hold still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't go anywhere. Sit yeah, they, still. They, they, they call that a, a recruiter's wet dream. Yeah, was, uh, you walk was, in the middle of two wars and say, Hey, I want to go in the infantry into the front lines. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I just remember him always joke, uh, looking over his right shoulder and yelling, I got one, whatever that meant. And, uh, so I joined and the one thing when I joined, I wanted to do is I wanted to learn how to jump out of planes. So when I joined, I got an airborne contract. Um, went down to Fort Benning um, in the fall of 2009. Um, I told him I had a wedding at the end of August. I was in, and I really didn't. I just didn't want to be in Georgia in July. <laughs> and I signed up in the spring. So uh, being a kid from Minnesota, I, did, I couldn't imagine. But I uh, went to uh, Fort Benning uh, to Sand Hill, did my basic training there, um, did my airborne school immediately after, and that was in January of 2010. And uh, it was June 6th of uh, 2010 then, and I was with the 101st Airborne Division uh, headed to Afghanistan. And uh, we landed in Kandahar. Um, I had really no idea what I was getting into. Um, you know, the only, the only thing I knew about going to war was literally watching movies. Um, you know, I remember packing, unpacking a thousand times with our mm-hmm. packing list, making sure we had everything and doing this. I really wasn't worried that I, if I had the things that I needed. Um, Really, once you get into war, you find out you have way more than you need. <laughs> um, you don't really need much. You know, I need some REM oil, uh, some dip, and uh, some beef jerky, and I can go for days, yeah. you know. CLP, it'll fix anything. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, got to Afghanistan, found, you know, kind of got our area of operations, got acclimated. We flew out to our area of operations. Um, uh, the area we were in was, you look at the, the country of Afghanistan, you know, and then you have the state, which, which they call the Providence. Um, and I was in the Kandahar Providence. And then the Zari district, which would be like the county, um, is where the Taliban are first originated from. That was their, their, their home. Um, and uh, you can imagine how easy it was to, they wanted to give that up. So um, they really didn't mess with us too much. We were on the north side of Highway 1. It's one highway that runs all the way around Afghanistan. And between uh, Highway 1 and the Argandab River is kind of where we were operating. And uh, we built our first base over there. And that was the first time we ever got shot at. The first time we got mortared, all those things, was, was at uh, uh, Fob Housing Madad there. And um, we got from there, we moved out to a place called Cop Terminator. And that's where we really started patrolling and doing stuff like that. That's a pretty solid infantry name. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 A cu- couple questions there, yeah. Honey Jack. So when you when you got to Afghanistan, uh, were you uh, just a, a rifleman and a, a, inf- a fire team or were you a team leader or yeah. how did that work? So being so fresh out of basic training, I was I was just, a, I, st- I started out as a rifleman when I first got to the 101st. And before we actually deployed, um, when we were at GR. RTC, that's when I took over a saw. And uh, you, got a, you had a saw build. Yeah, I was yeah. a big guy. You know, I got I was, stuck with a saw too right away. Six yeah. foot three, you know, 240 pounds. Um, they're like, this guy needs a saw. And I want to be a saw gunner, you know? And and for people that don't know, that's a squad automatic weapon. Yeah, it's that's a machine a, gun. Yeah, 249. It's a belt fed uh, machine yeah. gun. 
And it's uh, run by one guy, you know, on like a 240 that uh, takes a three-man fighter team. I mean, you got an A-gunner, but they're not really. I mean, you're carrying your own A-barrel and everything right. else, too. And I don't remember my A-gunner ever carrying extra ammo for me. It was always just me. <laughs> just like, so it's like A-gunner and title. Like, you you yeah. Marines are pretty hardcore. Uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're a glutton for punishment, I'd say. So uh, Anyway, sorry, man. No, and uh, so when I got there, I was just on a, on a, on a regular uh, team, you know, um, uh, not a weapon squad or anything like that. Just a regular uh, infantry, you know, platoon uh, fire team. Sure. Had your had any of your team leaders or squad leaders been to Afghanistan before? Yeah. So uh, most of the guys that uh, I was with, honestly, a lot of them have been to Iraq before. Um, none of them have been to Afghanistan before. Oh, so it was still um, pretty new for them. Every, everything was very new to a whole different style of fighting yeah and uh the one thing we learned uh we learned everything down at grtc that they said was going on in afghanistan and then when we got actually into afghanistan it's cool because a bunch of guys that um i was with um had that left basic training that didn't go to airborne school were already in had already been in afghanistan for a while so when we got there we started talking to them and they're like hey you know these are the tactics they're using everything you learned at grtc don't use <laughs> yeah don't you know, do they're that. like it's getting because it's getting everybody it's getting everybody hurt you know and they're like this is what you need to be doing and so then you go tell your buddies that and they're like oh that's that's good intel you know and that's kind of how we started learning was just from that and really, like we're, the area that we were going into, there have never been Americans in there before. So that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? So um, they didn't know what we were going to be doing when we got there because they haven't been seeing us operate in that area. So they didn't. We didn't really have any habits. We didn't have any. You know, nobody said, "Hey, this is a route that we typically patrol." Um, none of that. So they didn't know any of that. But at the same time, we nobody else had found any booby traps. Nobody else had found any IEDs. Nobody else had found anything, and it was fresh, ready to go. You know, mm-hmm. so it was like a good and bad so we we eventually got to cop terminator started patrolling out of there pretty heavily and then um um uh, the summer we just kept fighting and by uh the fall we ran our largest operation then and uh kind of the operation that was a very significant one um in the war in afghanistan and in the largest operation um it was called operation dragon strike and uh, what we ended up doing was digging a tank trench all the way from highway one all the way to the arkandab river so basically creating one checkpoint at the highway so we could stop the flow of arms going into Helmand Providence, trying to help the Marines out, trying to stop the flow of arms coming out of Pakistan. Sure. And, what, and so you said in the fall, is this 2009 fall or 2010? 2010. 2010. Okay. And um, so, uh, we, so when we went down there, um, we, did, we thought we'd be down there for about three weeks. Um, and we got in there, and uh, I remember that we shot this uh, Patriot missile thing off this truck and shot down this giant wadi. And it was a giant explosion, so that way we could use the wadi and any IEDs that were in there were supposed to go off from this thing. Remember this thing going off and making this huge explosion, and I didn't know that it was about to go off. And I remember just looking at my buddy, and I go, that was us, right? (laughs) 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 And uh, he's like, yeah, I think so. And uh, that kicked off the whole operation. And we basically gunfought day in, day out, um, all day long. We had reporters with us. They were supposed to be with us the whole time. Uh, the fourth day we got resupplied from a chopper and uh, they just jumped. They didn't even ask. They just jumped on. They said, we got enough footage. We're getting out of here. We're out. <laughs> yeah, this is no fun. And, uh, you know, sleeping on the dirt every night, um, getting eaten alive by sand fleas. Um, you know, you're not really sleeping much, trying to drink water during the day. But you, you, only water you have is what you're willing to carry while you're gunfighting. Um, well, and I imagine, too, in that uh, static of an environment, in that hot of an environment, you're probably doing... Uh, 
fifty percent up at at night even to, at least yeah, yeah. if not just one up three or one down three up and yep. rotating and pretty much yeah sure and uh, you know we're we're trying to st- we're, we're kicking people out of their homes at night because you can't take a get abandoned compounds because they're all usually rigged with IEDs and I mean it's just uh, you never know everything you have you're carrying with you you know your food your water. And then you're carrying that to fight with, you know, and because you, you never know where the fight's going to start. You never know where the fight's going to end. So you're always moving. And we've basically gun fought down there. Um, didn't take a ton of casualties during that. Um, had some guys get wounded and stuff. Nothing too major. My buddy Dawkins uh, had a lung collapse, stuff like that. Had an RPG hit the other side of the wall. Um, but we fought down there really hard, really long. Um, really took it to the Taliban. And then uh, the fighting slowed down a little, started slowing down a little bit after Operation Dragon Strike. I think their side was pretty wore out after that whole operation. Well, was was Marja down on the south going on? Yeah, that was all going on at the same time. That was all kind of part of the operation. So multiple uh, offensives were going on to really uh, take it to the, the the insurgency and the Taliban at that time too. Yeah, it was like a, it was kind of like a, you have nowhere to run, you have nowhere to hide because we're everywhere right now. Yep. You know, yep. and uh, it's we're here to fight. Yep. You know, kind of kind of almost like a from our our. Life last discussion almost like a reverse tet offensive it was us yes. loading up to to bring it to them all yeah at i think once. that was eight thousand troops in the zari district so i mean you take one county you put eight thousand soldiers in there oh, yeah. there really is nowhere to, <laughs> and, nowhere then, to and, and then all the air asset and artillery asset that comes on top of that too so yeah so that was a it was a tough time for the taliban and so we're when you guys were, were uh you know doing that improvement uh digging that trench essentially the tank the battle trench uh was that engineers then you guys are providing yep. cover and security for so they can do their work yeah, basically, they really didn't even need a whole lot of cover and security, basically because they, they were the smallest, distri- they were the least problem to the Taliban at the time. Sure. <laughs> it was them digging a trench, you know what I mean? Uh, we were clearing every compound, we were going through every 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 inch of that of that AO. We were gonna we were gonna dig around in that day, and we were gonna we we're gonna I mean that those weeks, and um, if there was something that was to be found down there, we were gonna find it, or you know them, <laughs> whoever it was, you know. Sure. And. Um, one of the things that we had was when we were at Cop Terminator, um, right before Operation Dragon Strike even kicked off, was one of our largest problems we had was um, what we were talk, um, was the recoilless rifle. Um, it was uh, we got shell from that thing for thirty days straight. We had rounds coming into our base um, all day, every day. Um, basically, the sun was up. We're living in bunkers. Um, you know, we just bring a deck of cards and play spades if you had some downtime mm-hmm. and living in a bunker. You know. And uh, if it wasn't that, it was mortars, you know. And um, every time you had one hit, we'd, lo- we'd gear up to get a back azimuth and chase it down and try, you know. And, um, you know, from some of that stuff, um, um, it inspired me to do things when I got home. Um, we were chasing that recoilless rifle one day, and uh, a bunch of kids, um, after we had gone through the village chasing these guys through there, um, they were hooking up IEDs as we were chasing them. And we didn't continue to chase them far enough to actually run into these IEDs. And um, they had got out. They left town, and then we went. We went back to our base. <clears throat> we were back for maybe half hour, forty five minutes, and we heard these couple blasts go off. And we we're like, "That's strange. What's what's going on?" Usually, whenever you hear a blast, you're headed for a bunker, thinking it's incoming rounds, you know. And um, a, a little bit later, a stream of people started coming out of this village, and we're like, "Oh, here we go. What's going on?" But the elder was out front and typically very friendly, and. Uh, he came up and um, he's like, hey, we got some kids that are hurt. And what had happened was these kids stepped on the IED playing oh, soccer out sure. back after the after everything had happened. And I remember carrying one of those kids up to the aid station and uh, us getting him on a chopper and stuff, getting him medevaced out of there. And then I had to go set up in a guard tower and pull a uh, uh, guard for four hours after that. 
remember sitting in that guard tower and, and the guilt that I felt from that, um, that these kids had nothing to do with, with no reason to get hurt. They had um, nothing to do with what was happening. Um, That's just their world, their reality. Yeah, it was horrible. And it's just like these kids never had a chance to make a name for themselves or create a legacy or change the world, you know? And, uh, and that's really all I was trying to do as a young kid. You know, I was just trying to make the world a better place and uh, serve my country. And, uh, I thought, what can I do for these kids? You know? And, uh, I really didn't know how I was ever going to do that, but I just knew that someday I was going to make, these kids were going to make a difference in somebody else's lives because of the sacrifice. I looked at their, that them giving their lives to make somebody else's life better. And, um, that's what ended up inspiring me to, to start the trap shooting team, you know, when I got back here, which, you know, we can talk about later and stuff, but um, that's what inspired me to, to start the trap shooting team and to teach these kids that how lucky they are just to be born here and have the opportunities of, of, uh, you know, being an American, you know, or being, you know, walking to school every single day, not having to worry about stepping on IED or like playing basketball at the courts in Cleveland and, and not worrying about stepping on IED, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, well, well that probably is, you know, one of the, the best, uh, gifts you could do coming out of a, a traumatic experience like that is, is looking, uh, how to grow, uh, and shape people in the future based off of what you witnessed and experienced for the positive uh, to take advantage of it and you know we, we joke all the time bonus days right like yeah. i have extra days that people don't uh, get and that goes to the civilian casualties and people that you uh, you witnessed over there not just the people you served alongside man so yeah i mean um it's uh being 20 years old you know i mean it was just so much uh horrible things happening around me all the time you know and when you're living it you don't realize uh, how unnormal it is you know you're like i'm at war this is just what's supposed to right. be happening yep. you know it's just uh it's just what's going on and then all of a sudden one day you get home and you're like wow i live <laughs> i lived through some pretty messed up stuff you yeah. know and um but yeah so that was all that was all cop terminator stuff operation dragon strike um so a lot of that too besides the big operations you guys pretty much just doing like patrol based operations yeah basically daily patrolling um we'll call them presence patrols kinda, yeah more or less yeah being, we're basically movement to contact yep. every day we go out patrol we say so we we'd find a reason to go out right we're gonna look for a cache we're gonna uh go talk to the elder in reality we knew that there was somebody over there we were looking for um but you know with the current times that were going on with the rules of engagement and things we couldn't say we we're going out to do a movement to contact you know we were going out to meet the elders and we just so happened to stumble into a gunfight along the way you know well that was even in I iraq uh they changed the term from uh search and destroy to cordon and knock <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i know yeah like right. you, you end up still having the same thing you know yeah you same the, same yeah. tactics different name you know same but different and uh at least it didn't get to like something like hey we're going out to ice cream delivery like <laughs> yeah. like well there's ice cream like no <laughs> shut up <laughs> there's no there's there's no ice cream there's, there's, there'd yeah. be that one private two yeah. in the background like oh we're getting ice cream yeah. like, this is great no this no, is but, what i signed up for we're not knocking on any door either. <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's no knocking there's no ice cream that's how you get shot yeah, yeah. uh and so uh you know coming into the fall of 2010 then uh the fighting started slowing down a little bit um, but that's when I experienced my worst time in Afghanistan. It was about October 15th. Um, I got a remember I was sitting in the truck and uh, across the radio came in, uh, Hey man, uh, anybody who got land in their truck and I, and I, I radioed in, yep, he's in my truck or whatever. He goes, Hey, let him know that his daughter was born. Uh, Riley, she weighs this much. She's this long. And I was like, I remember like looking back and I was like, I was like Roger. And I remember looking back and being like, Hey land, you know, your daughter's born, you know, you got, you got yeah. a little baby girl, you know, it's the best thing in the world. 
we're all high five and stuff excited. And, um, uh, about two weeks went by and we were at a different base now called Lockacale. And, uh, we're living there and we really couldn't get choppers in and out of Lockacale. There really wasn't a good place to land a chopper. Um, all the way around us was pretty rough area. Um, we were right at the base of a, of a mountain called Gundigar and it was a man-made mountain, literally buckets of sand out of the Argandab river piled up. So Alexander the great could oversee the whole Argandab river Valley. Hmm. And uh, we thought, well, that's a really cool place to build a base. <laughs> we should put one up there. <laughs> yeah. And so we had a base up there. And that's kind of where if we needed anything chopper-wise, we had to go go up there. And there was one village in between us and 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 um, um, Gundigar. And uh, that one village um, was <laughs> a very rough, rough neighborhood. And um, we had a base like on the other side of it from Gundigar. And we were there. And finally, this two weeks had gone by. And, and uh, I remember I was up in a guard tower. And uh, my platoon sergeant came up there and he's like, hey, do you want to help get Lando to Gundigar so we can get him home to meet his daughter? He's supposed to be going home on leave. And I was like, absolutely. I volunteered for everything. Um, when, I signed, when I signed I signed up to join my country. I wanted to serve. I, I wasn't kidding. You know, that's that's all I wanted to do was, uh, was, was serve. And so I was like, yep, I'm going, especially to help my best friend get home. Mm-hmm. And um, we loaded up in trucks. There's four of them. I was in the last truck. And um, we started going. We started headed to, to Gundigar. And, uh, we're rolling through and we're pretty, pretty skinny group, you know, um, we're not, we don't have any extra assets and, uh, we're rolling through and I remember we get to the edge of town and I was like, Hey, there's, there's dudes running out there in the field <laughs> and the Afghans, they don't run unless they're up to something, you know, they have nothing else to do or something's about to happen. Yeah. You know? They have nothing else to do. Um, they have nowhere to be, right. you know, there's, they don't have, there's no reason for there's them no to school, run. There's no school. There's literally no school. There's literally no doctor. There's no, no insurance agents. They're not going to work in the factory that, right. There's have. no, these are farmers, you know? So if you see somebody running, you're like, Oh, here we go. And, uh, I remember the guy running in the field and I was like, Hey, we got guys running and they're like, push, <laughs> let's just try to blow through this. You know, and I remember going faster and faster and faster and I was driving and, um, we finally get to the middle of town and there's one culvert in the middle of town and you're like, if this is going to happen, so it's going to happen. First truck goes over it. Second truck goes over it. Third truck's going over it. Boom. Blown to the moon, you know? And I was like, shoot. And, uh, I was 95% sure at that time land was not in that truck, you know? So I was like, oh man, the only reason we're out here is to get him home, you know? And I remember that truck had, didn't have a gunner in it. It had a crow system on it. Meaning there's a guy sitting in the back seat with a joystick and a screen and there's not anybody actually sticking out of that gun. And, uh, so right away when they, they hit the IED, we don't really know right away. Usually if there's somebody mm-hmm. in the turret, they can give you a, Hey, everybody's pretty good. Or everybody's like, Hey, you know, and, uh, we're kind of waiting and find the hatch pops open and we get the thumbs up. Everybody's good. But right now we're on high alert because now we're stuck in the middle of town. The vehicle's disabled. Disabled. Only three trucks. Three yeah. trucks what are you going to do? You know, do we push, do we, we, we can't leave the trucks behind, you know? So it's like, we're surrounded. We have 10, 12 foot walls all the way down the middle of this road. Um, just waiting for people to come crawling over them, you know? And we're like, let's get some security set up and let's figure out what we're going to do. So I'm on the radio back to the battalion, letting them know, Hey, we hit an IED. Everybody's okay. Um, I'll give you a sit rep situation report as soon as we have one, you know? Mm-hmm. And about that time, I remember here opening my door, and I was, I was just getting out, and um, Pagan says, hey, we're going to try to drag this truck in front of us. Um, we're going to hook this thing up. We're going to try to drag it to the edge of town at least, so we only can get hit from one side instead of four sides, you know? Not funnel it in with the walls and everything. Yeah, too, let's so. just drag this thing out of here a little ways. And it wasn't, the truck was beat up. It wouldn't run, but 
it wasn't bad enough to not be able to drag it. We heard it, we had an MRAP and an MATV in front of it, and the MRAPs um, didn't have a whole lot of power, but the MATVs did. So we tried hooking it up first to the MRAP because it was right in front of it, and the MRAP wouldn't drag it. So then they had to do the whole little move a truck around, you know, dan- you know, moving trucks around or whatever, and land was down in the ditch, and I was running back up into the truck to radio battalion to let them know that we we're going to drag this truck to the edge of town. Cause they couldn't see us on the raid camera or anything anymore either because of where we were and that's probably how the IED got there and um i remember jumping up in the truck and i just pulled my foot in the truck and i looked over and i was watching land down in the ditch and he's like going back 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 in this truck up and my buddy ludo was in the gun and corb had his door was holding the door open uh, with his left arm looking at land down in the ditch and um uh, i just remember land stepping back at one more step and just seeing the plume of dust come flying out you know my door getting slammed shut on my truck and uh i just remember seeing his gear falling in the rearview mirror and i seen him come rolling out of there and uh i knew right away that it wasn't good you know and i knew that land was no longer with us because i could see him and uh he was pretty catastrophically wounded and uh i just seen everybody else laying on the ground and i was like oh no (laughs) Mask has. Yeah, big time. And I remember the first thing I did was just get on the radio and call him medevac immediately because I was like, I just got to get a bird on the way and then I can go start helping everybody. I dropped the ramp on my truck. We had a battalion medic with us. Our medic wasn't with us because another medic that was on was on leave and they're running air assaults and they didn't want to put the battalion medic. They wanted a medic that's running patrols every single day with them while they're running air assaults. So our medic was going to run air assaults with another platoon while their medic was on leave. So we had the battalion medic with us. And I was like, dude, you got to go. Like, get out there and start helping dudes, you know? And I remember dropping the gate. And the guy in my truck that was in the gun was Vandenbosch. He had been in country for two weeks. He was a replacement. <laughs> And I was like, if you see anybody, just start smoking people. <laughs> like we, yeah, welcome to the country, kid. Yeah, like like right now we are so outnumbered. Like <laughs> three to one is what we normally fight. And I was like, right now that means we can take on like six guys. <laughs> like that's where we're at. And, uh, or not even, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, backwards. And uh, so I started going on trying to help guys, get guys sat up and stuff. It was so dusty. You know, guys are choking and stuff on the dust. There's moon dust everywhere. I'm just waiting for rounds to start coming in. And we just started getting guys medevaced out. And uh, before you know, it was just a few of us left. My platoon sergeant, he was wounded, but he refused to go because there's so little guys, you know, and it was his knee and stuff. But he wasn't, he wasn't like catastrophically wounded or anything, but it was hurting. And um, I remember getting Lamb picked up, you know, and having to get him medevaced out of there. And uh, and um, it was just a experience that I wasn't, you know, you're just never prepared for that, you know. I mean, mentally, you know, you're at war. It can happen. Um, the whole reason we were out there that day was to get him home. You know, home. there was no even reason to keep going to Gundigar at this point. You know I mean? Yeah. There was, there was no reason to go there. And, uh, I remember driving back and pulling into our base. It was just me in the truck. First time I've ever been in a vehicle by myself in country. I mean, you just don't do that, you know, and yep. there's nobody left. And I remember pulling in there and jumping out of the truck. My buddy Oswick, he was standing at the base of my truck and he's like, as soon as I jumped out, uh, he's like, what happened? <laughs> I was like, I don't even know, man. Like, yeah, I can't even, I have no idea. Like I didn't need, I don't even, I'm just, I'm just literally processing, just getting my friends on a chopper, driving back. And, uh, yeah, it was horrible. A uh, couple hours there because that's what I mean is hours because it's like, uh, I think that night, I don't think I went on patrol, but I think some guys went on patrol that village trying to find those guys. Sure. And then, uh, the next day we all went out there. Well, and that's, um, you know, I think a, a pretty 
common reaction because a lot of your training just takes over in those incidents and yeah you know triage and calling in air uh, pulling security and so you don't rightfully so you don't have time to sit and think about what happened and you that's not the time to do it either right. because yeah. you still got an active environment uh to take care of and get yourself out of and so that's well, whenever you know a, a big loss or a big hit like that it's usually that that big adrenaline let down as soon as you get back into the fob yep. uh, or the patrol base that really just kind of i think the you know being with a bunch of guys that have been to iraq and stuff and lost friends and whatever you know uh those are obviously my my guys that was i found my strength from in that time to pull me through you know and uh Within a couple hours, you know, I remember guys being like, hey, this isn't a time to get sad. This is time to get mad. Let's go get even, Yep. you know, and uh, and that's that's still a, also a pretty common to help to help, uh, you know, not sit and, and dwell and go to that spot is to get you back outside the, the wire to get you back out on patrol again and yeah. get your mission focused again. And that's that's as much about not trying to say, hey, we don't want you to have time to process it, but if we let you have too much time to process it, you're going to be a threat to yourself and your own safety because your head won't be in the game. Yeah, and, and literally, you know, it's just a, a platoon or maybe two yeah. running these these cops, so either you're patrolling or you're pulling guard, you know, it's one or the other. So it's like we don't have time for you to feel sorry about this stuff. You can deal with this when you get home. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you can deal with it when you get home. We have a war to win. And the guys you know? out of the cop need us back there too because they're under man and right. don't, you don't know, think and the insurgency doesn't know that. That's where I started thinking about like, you know, um, some of these things like adversity and things, you know, later on in life when I started thinking about adversity, you know, where I find my strength from adversity. And a lot of this stuff probably stemmed from them. You know, I started thinking about, you know, I'm wearing the 101st Airborne patch on my shoulder, you know. I got the black heart on my helmet. I'm holding up a quite a legacy here. And, um, you know, I think about those guys that were storming the beaches or jumping into Normandy, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just like, you know, those guys are getting shot out of the air, you know, before they even get a chance to jump and they're finally hitting the ground. They have nobody else. And it's just like, you know what? I don't wear this patch for no damn reason, you know, and uh, it's time to suck it up, push on and, 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 you know, be a screaming eagle, you know, now's the time to do it. And, uh, you know, that's what we did. We went on and kept patrolling and doing our thing and, and uh, December it got really slow. Um, not really a whole lot of fighting going on at all. Was it snowing in December there? No, it never really snowed ever where we were at there. And, um, um, in the mountains you could see it and stuff around us, but never down in the river valley where we were at. And, uh, where we were at, it was like, it was like the most fertile soil you can imagine from highway one all the way to the Argonaut river. And then the Argonaut river was just a few, maybe a hundred yards wide. And it was only like a five foot stream at most of the time running through the middle of it. But when you got to the other side of the river, it was literally the red desert. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was, uh, it's a very w- cool place to be, you know, it's just not somewhere you can be like Midwest soil, walk a hundred yards, be in Arizona, you know? Sure. And, um, it was a very, uh, beautiful place, but, uh, finally New Year's day kicked off again. Um, started fighting in January again. Um, a lot tougher for them to fight cause there wasn't no, no, um, um, concealment for them. You know, there was no vegetation. Um, you know, it was a lot tougher for them to fight. And then, um, February came around and I always joke, uh, I keep track of things in my life by events, not dates. So somewhere between the Super Bowl and the Daytona 500, I came home, <laughs> <laughs> came home on leave and, uh, I got to spend a few weeks here. Uh, and, and, uh, I turned 21 in Afghanistan while I was there. So, uh, the first week of my leave, I don't really remember a whole lot of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. yeah. I had a good time. And, uh, uh, the second week I, I got, I got to business a little bit more, seeing people doing stuff like that and, um, had the best time ever coming home, uh, after a much needed break. 
And uh, I always joke, uh, the best thing I ever did before I went back to uh, Afghanistan is I got down on a knee and I asked my wife to marry me. Uh, little did I know it's been my last chance. <laughs> last time to do it. Last yeah. chance, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you were uh, home on leave, actually me and a couple of our mutual friends uh, grew up uh, with your recruiter. Oh, uh, yeah. And I remember Tony saying, hey, uh, this cool kid, Jack, that's back in town from Afghanistan that's getting some, him and his girl are, are stopping by because he lived in St. Yeah. Peter at the time. Yeah, I remember that. I remember like, hey, come by yeah. for a drink and whatever. You know, I was mid-20s at the time or late 20s and yeah. uh, still still doing some of the more uh, wild nights. And we, you know, had pre-game before getting there, <laughs> so we just mi- missed you. And then Tony was just glowing about you then, too. And I, I think it, it might have been... Uh, you had told him you were going to propose to her or something, but yeah. hadn't yet. And he was just on cloud nine. And then I think I saw from him the picture of, you know, you proposing to her in Afghanistan. And then that's, you know, later on yeah. we met in person. So, yeah, you know, and it was, uh, so Megan didn't say no. no she, she said, said she yes. Said yes. Uh, I, literally, okay. I literally said, Hey, will you marry me? And can I get a ride to the airport in the morning? <laughs> and, uh, I'm offering you TRICARE. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in exchange, yeah. uh, I, uh, Jumped on a plane, head back to Afghanistan, and uh, I was only there for a couple of days. Um, back with my guys, you know, getting back in the swing of things. Um, How was that kind of coming back from being <laughs> back in, you know, Western society, flush toilets, hot showers, you know, hot food? Honestly, I loved Afghanistan. I loved being with my guys. Um, I loved every minute of it. And uh, it's funny for me, me and my wife look back at old Facebook messages and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, I'd be, I'd, some of my messages would be like, "Hey, uh, having a good time, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> living, you know, you know, having a great time. I uh, hope everything's going good at home, you know, and stuff like that. You know, it's not like oh, I can't wait to get out of here, this or that. You know, I mean, I really enjoyed being over there. I love the challenges every day, um, the survival. You know, just trying to survive every single day was was I found enjoyment in it, honestly. And uh, I went back to Afghanistan. Um, it was March 9th. I woke up just like any other day probably like two o'clock in the morning to go sit in a guard tower and uh it was like six o'clock in the morning seven o'clock in the morning i remember getting out of the guard tower carrying all my gear out of there and i was was right next to our tent in the guard tower that i was in and i come around the corner and i remember walking up to the tent and uh there's like a like a fabric overhang or whatever you want to call it that we could stay out of the sun you know and everybody like a, would like an awning. Kind yeah, of like thing. an awning. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. And the guys would hang out underneath that thing, and because um, you couldn't really be in the tent hanging out because it, guys were always on different hours of the different day. You know, either the guys were out patrolling all night and they just got back in, and they're finally getting some sleep, or the guys are just getting in the guard tower, whatever it is. You know, so if you're hanging out, get out of the tent. You know, so that's where everybody's hanging out. I remember stopping there for a minute and 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 BSing with my guys for a little bit, and. Uh, I'm, they're like, hey, go check out the whiteboard and see what you're doing today. It's up. So every day, the, whenever uh, platoon sergeant would wake up, he'd write on the board what the plan was for the day. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning, you might use a white eraser and erase everything and go, that's that's not the plan. But as of right now, this is a plan for the day. And I seen that I was going on patrol that morning, and uh, which was normal. You know, I usually always patrol at least once a day. You know, two, two, two uh, squads would go out. Um, in the morning and two squads would go out in the afternoon. We'd patrol different areas, you know, while the other squad would pull guard, you know, et cetera. So I seen that we were going out in the morning. So I had a little bit of downtime. So I went in my bunk, I laid down and uh, I was going through my camera, deleting pictures that I didn't want anymore. And, uh, <laughs> I just remember the, for whatever reason, I just deleted a whole bunch of pictures I didn't want anymore. But my feet are crossed up at the end of my bunk. And I think, well, this would be a, I'm going to take a picture of my feet crossed at the end of my bunk for whatever reason, snap a picture 
And my team leader Hurley walks by and he hits me and goes, hey, uh, we're going outside to get a mission briefing. Let's go. So I jump up, put my boots on, go out there, get the mission briefing. What we're doing today is we're going to go out. We're going to push up to the top of this village where we see the Taliban going in and out of all the time. Or every time you see guys going in and out of this area, um, usually some stuff kicks off. So we're guessing there's a cache up there. Go find it. All right, that sounds fun. Let's go steal the Taliban stuff. And, and who's this intel coming from? Um, battalion? From battalion. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, this guy have guys living on raid cameras watching patterns of people, you know, and they're like, how come every time we see six guys go into this area and, you know, something kicks off within an hour, you know? Sure. So there's got to be something in there. Go find it. So we're heading up there, and we popped through a couple of villages. I remember that but every time I went to this one village, there was this guy and his son. And it was really weird that day because his son wasn't there. I just remember like that was like one thing that started out weird that day. I mean, every time we had been through there in the last six months, he was always there, but he wasn't there that day. And I have no idea if it has anything tied to that or not, but it was just one thing I noticed mm-hmm. that day that, that I was like, hmm, okay, that's strange. And uh, we kept pushing up, and we got, finally got to the north side of this village. And on the north end, um, you know, f- from the village to the north was Highway 1. And I imagine the, this giant berm of dirt on the north end of this village was piled up to fight the Russians off of back in the day, you know? And uh, my, team, my team was on the point. I was on the right flank, like we said earlier, as a saw gunner. And uh, I was by myself on that flank. And then my team leader had two riflemen to his left. Support elements in between, you know, medic, translator, um, platoon sergeant, radio guy to call in air, um, and then a whole nother squad. And uh, our first sergeant was out there with us that day. He always patrolled with us. He was the uh, best first sergeant that, you know, you could ever imagine, you know. Uh, great leader, always with his guys out in patrol, never too good to do anything. Um, just a great overall leader. And uh, my, my team leader says, hey, run up on that berm, make sure there's not a bunch of guys laying there side of that way and ambush us. So I ran up on top of that berm, and as soon as I got to the top of the berm, I seen two guys running into town, and I was like, you know, you've been there for a while, you know, who's up to no good and stuff. I said, hey, there's the guys we're looking for. And uh, as soon as I did that, I looked down. As soon as I looked down, there was an IED. I was basically standing on top of it. And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and I need to get off of that, so I ran all the way. So I got off of that, ran all the way to the end of that berm, and my teammate went up and threw a charge on that IED, and as soon as he blew it up, uh, they started shooting at us thinking we were shooting at them from that explosion. I'm sure it just scared them, you know? Yeah, sure. Startled them. Startled them, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, so for the IED, too, sorry to, to yeah. stop again, too. Yeah. Was that, was that uh, I mean, was that hardlined or was it uh, remote uh, detonated? Obviously it was wired it in. Wired. It was wired in, yep. So you saw the wires. Uh, so, yep. And I think what happened was, was that they had the wires going to it, but they didn't have the wires hooked up yet. And when they seen us coming, I think what their theory was, was to get that IED hooked up quick. But I think we got there too fast. They just didn't time it out right. We got there. We got on top of them too fast. Yep. Kicked them off of it. And then I think what their idea was going to be was to to take a couple pop shots at us, get us to crawl up on that berm, and then blow the IED once we were on the berm. You sure. Know? And it's it's pretty common practice from what I've heard in Afghanistan, but especially in Iraq. I think it, it translates as that they would do IEDs, the hardline ones, in, in phases where somebody would come by and dig a hole one day. and then Daisy some, chain. Somebody yeah. would, yep drop it and then, then they'd wire it in and they'd hook it to the detonator then so they could get in too. So just lucky that it wasn't either somebody wasn't man on the other side at that one right. uh, or it wasn't hooked up yet at that side. And, and honestly it was like, you know, it wasn't very uncommon for us to go out in a single day and find two, maybe three IEDs every day, just patrolling, you know? And at this time in Afghanistan were uh, pressure plates pretty That was common. pretty much it. That was yeah. pretty much the main thing. And, um, you want to maybe describe a pressure, a pressure plate? Yeah. Um, and that was the thing too, is like, we didn't really have EOD, 
you know, because like if, every time we found it, if we waited every time we found an EOD for EOD to get out there, we, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. <laughs> you know, what I mean? just be stuck waiting the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I love my EOD brothers and sisters, but that was always the joke as the infantry side is uh, eating on duty because every time they call yeah. EOD, yeah. it's like, well, it's about chow time, so we'll yeah, be out there. Like, yeah, I mean that's a right. exaggeration, but you know, yeah, it was but that's, that's perspective. So honestly, every time we found one, we just throw a charge on it yeah. and blow it ourselves, you know, and. Uh, um, a pressure plate IED is, is just a, it's called victim operated. So when you step on it, it, it ignites the IED. You're the one that sets it off. And then all the explosives underneath it go off. And usually it's like in Afghanistan, what they were using was these Iranian toe popper mines and they're plastic. So hard to detect with a metal detector. And then they would bury that on top of homemade jugs of homemade explosives. So a little toe popper, which was meant to just blow somebody's foot up a little bit, um, in a minefield turns into an initiator to blow off more IED, you know, or explosives, you know. And uh, this one was just in a mortar round, old mortar round casing, packed full. And uh, that's what they were, that's what this was. And um, I, uh, we found that one, blew it up. They started shooting at us, gunfight breaks out. Kiowas come screaming in, started throwing hellfires in all the buildings. Helicopters. Yeah, come, yep. Yep, helicopters come flying in, uh, started throwing uh, missiles into all the buildings. Um, it's over super quick. And uh, we decided that we're going to, since we used up some munitions and stuff, we're not going to keep pushing into this village and get any deeper. Um, especially with just using up some of our air assets. We're not going to keep pushing in there. We're going to head back, grab some more ammo, water, take a different push or do a different day. Yeah. Cause we really weren't that close to cache. So it's not like they, they knew we were on to them or something, you know? So we we're going to head back. So we, we get a little standoff from this village. So we start backing away from it and uh, we do what's called the reverse order of movement. So my team was in the front of the way in, now we're in the back, and um, we all started jumping across the ditch, and I'm the last one to jump across, pulling security for everybody. I jump across, and I head out to the right flank, and my team leader says, hey, you know, I'm gonna f flip my team, because I want you to be on the village side we just took contact from, being the saw gunner. So he flips us. So I start running over to the other side of the formation, and I'm just getting caught up, literally running in my buddy Abbott's footsteps. I mean, that's super common practice over in Afghanistan was you literally strutted out and whoever that was in front of his footsteps because it's checked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, we're walking across this giant plowed field, just like you'd see in Southern Minnesota. I mean, just fields plowed forever, you know? It's all marijuana, opium, that's all they grow down there. And uh, we're walking across this field. You know, it's March, so there's no vegetation yet. They haven't planted anything yet. And uh, I'm walking across it and uh, my team leader goes, hey, we're getting ICOM chatter. And NICOM is a radio that our interpreter listens to. He can hear the Taliban talking on it. And uh, our team leader says, hey, they're getting ready to hit us again. And um, he, he always had, like, Hurley was always super instinctual on, they're going to hit us from right here. I can just feel it. And they, 80% of the time, he was always right, you know. And so I'd always ask him, hey, so Hurley, where they're going to hit us from? And he says, I don't know, Jackie boy. I don't, wham, I stepped right on that IED out in that field. And um, I remember getting blown in the air. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fast, you know, and, uh, you don't really know what's happening. Uh, you, you, there's so many things, you know, did I get hit in the tail with a mortar? Did, uh, Afghan national army guy just get rowdy with RPG and I just catch the back blast. Um, did I step on an IED? Um, you know, there's so right. many things that could been, you know? And I just remember feeling that heat crawl up my back. It felt like 10,000 little fingers, and I just kept flipping and flipping. It was like a bad dream where I couldn't wake up until I finally hit the ground, you know? And I finally hit the ground, and the uh, first thing I was looking at was my left arm, but it's hard to see because I had so much blood and mud smeared on my glasses. Uh, There's so much dust. 
Um, this is immediately, you know, as soon as I hit the ground, I was, tr- I was trying to look around, you know, I mean, I never really got knocked out and, uh, I'm looking at my left arm and I can see the whole bottom side of it's blown out and I'm bleeding pretty bad. And my first aid kit was on my left side cause I was, I was shot with my right. So I said my uh, first aid kit on my left so I could continue to shoot with my right if I needed to grab something out of my first aid kit, you know, mm-hmm. but I couldn't reach back to it cause when I landed, I felt my shoulder break and I was like, shoot, <laughs> this is not good, you know? And, uh, I had no idea anything else was hurt yet. Um, I couldn't really hear anything from the IED going off underneath me. And all of a sudden I started seeing tracer rounds going over my head. And I knew that we were shooting at somebody because the Taliban never had tracer rounds. And, um, I just remember seeing the rounds go over. I'm like, Oh man, here we go. Complex ambush. <laughs> and, uh, I was just laying there trying to figure out what was going on. So I was trying to grab a tourniquet then out of my right, right night vision pouch. Cause I had another tourniquet stuffed over there and I was trying to get my pouch open. And I was like, what is going on? And I remember, Looking over then, and every time my heartbeat, I could see the blood spraying out the backside of my arm, um, closer to my elbow, but like right in the middle of my arm, my arm snapped in half, hanging straight down. Uh, I have no hands at this point. I need two tourniquets at least <laughs> that I know of right now. Sure. Uh, and I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, uh, this is about worst case scenario, you know? And, uh, finally my buddy Daniels, he came sliding on top of me and, uh, he starts trying to get my arms off and while he's trying to get my arms off, um, you know, he's talking to me or whatever. And, uh, the whole time I was like, Hey man, you got to get off my boys. You know, you're pinching my stuff. I felt like he's kneeling right on him, you know? And, uh, what he's doing is he had his knees in my femoral arteries trying to pinch those off while he's trying to get oh, my sure. arms. Sure. And, uh, I was like, dude, you gotta get off me. It hurts. You know? And he's like, no, I gotta stay here in this crater with you. And about that time, doc came sliding in. And when doc came sliding in, he cut my rack off me, all my, my gear, you know, he cut all that off me quick with scissors. And, uh, we have a tab on our plate. So that way if we, you know, we get, we land in the water or whatever, need to get rid of our body armor quick. You can pull that tab and it'll just fall apart. He pulled that tab on my plates and took my plates off me. And, uh, as soon as he did that, I sat up cause I wanted to get out of there. I didn't know idea where my rifle was. So I sat up to get out of there and that's when I seen that my right leg was completely ripped off, like right, right below my hip. And, uh, my left leg from the knee down was pretty much just clean bone and my boot was still kind of there, but it was tough and uh i didn't know i was gonna get out of there right away i started thinking how are you gonna get me on a chopper uh i didn't want to go on a litter because i figured that'd take four guys to carry a litter realistically uh i was like do you think i can get my arms around two guys and you can carry me and they're like ah, I back, yeah. Yeah, yeah i don't know you know and uh i didn't know how i was gonna get out of there uh 10th mountain was not notorious for flying into a hot lz so i knew that it was gonna be a minute till we could lock down the, the lz you know good enough that they'd land and I was sitting there going through all the stuff in my head and my guys are talking to me and me and Daniels were going to move in together when we got back and he's trying to talk to me and, and they're like, just keep talking to him, keep him talking, you know? And, uh, Daniels is like, you're still bringing the couch, right? And I'm like, yeah, man, <laughs> just trying to think of anything to talk about. I remember shoot, talking about archery bows and all kinds of stuff. Just something besides just, that yeah, your just, feet are missing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anything. Just keep uh, yeah. talking. I remember I was so thirsty and I was like, dude, I need something to drink so bad, you know? And, and doc's like, you can't have anything right now, you know? And, uh, finally doc, I fought him long enough. He poured some water on some gauze, shoved that in the corner of my mouth. Um, let me start sucking on that for a little bit. And I still trying to talk to my guys and, uh, I was getting really, really tired at this point. I couldn't talk anymore. And I was like, but I have to do something to stay awake, awake and alive. You know, I just remember shaking my head left, right, left, right, left, right. And finally, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm at the end of my life. Uh, if I'm going to say something, I have to say it now. Like, what do I want my last words on this earth to be, you know? 
And um, all I could get out was tell everybody back home I love them. And uh, uh, I really thought right there I was I was going to die right then and there. You know, I just kind of accepted it at that point, you know, and, and I was okay with it. Like, I knew that whether I lived or I died, I was going to be okay. I mean, um, I'm a Christian, that's what I believe, you know, I'm, I'm going to a better place, you know. And um, I just remember starting seeing my whole life start flashing before my eyes and, and uh, stuff as young as like four or five years old, like, um, you know, playing ball with my friends in town, you know, in high school and all that and screwing around on the lake with my friends and all the best times in my life, you know, and, and I kind of realized as that was happening that, you know, it didn't matter the basketball court that me and my friends were playing on, you know, it didn't matter we if we had the best basketball hoop or not, you know, half the time we were playing on the worst basketball hoop in town, mm-hmm. you know, but it was the friends that I was with, you know. It wasn't the kind of car that we were driving around in. We weren't driving around in a brand new Tesla or whatever, you know. It was it was probably a '93 Luminar or something, you know, <laughs> and uh, with a CD that was skipping, you know. But it didn't matter because I was with my friends in the car, you know. And I started learning these things right as I felt like I was at the end of my life. I had this this epiphany, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, you know, this realization, this clarity, whatever it was, and. Uh, all of a sudden I heard that woof, 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 woof. You know, I was like, man, I can't be the guy that dies right when that thing gets here. You know, how would I ever write a book and sell a million copies? You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I honestly thought, though, how can I die right before the helicopter gets here? You know, and uh, I remember reaching down deep inside of myself and just just took everything I had, literally everything I had, every, every, every ounce and every piece of energy, any hope, dream, desire to live. I had to reach for at this point in time in my life and I had to get one more breath in me if I was going to make it to that chopper. And for whatever reason in my head, I felt like if I made it to the chopper, there was going to be somebody on that chopper that was going to have some magic wand that was going to save me, you know, but in life, it's kind of like, I just need to get to this next phase line. I just need to get to this next phase line. That's kind of where I felt like I was at. And they picked me up and hauled me across this field. I looked down and I see my foot bouncing on my stomach. It's just whipped on the litter with me. And, uh, as soon as they get me to the chopper and they slide me in there, you can hear the rounds ripping off the chopper trying to shoot this thing down. I'm thinking, how so, do these guys land here? So they're still engaging this whole yeah, time. Yeah, they're still engaging. They're still fighting. And uh, I remember looking up and seeing the pilot had a 101st patch on. And I was like, heck yeah, okay. man. Guys, here we go. Yeah, this is why this chopper landed right That's now. These guys yeah. don't care about this thing, you know? And uh, I remember my uh, medic saying, hey, I put two tourniquets on each limb, you know? And uh, the flight medic goes, I don't give a shit. We got to go. You know, we're getting shot up, you know, yeah. door slammed shut. I look over, I see Hurley laying on the floor next to me and, I'm, and it was the worst feeling I had through the, through the whole thing was I looked over and I see somebody else laying there from an IED that I stepped on. Uh, I'm like, man, I kill him. You know, it was the worst feeling in the world that I did something else. I killed somebody else. That's you know? Sergeant Hurley, your squad leader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My team leader. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, no, this is not good. And, uh, all of a sudden he sat up and looked at me and what had happened was a giant, piece of propane tank come flying out of there bounced off his shoulder hit him in the head and gave him about the worst concussion you can get and he sat up and he was brutally honest with me he's like dude you're gonna die <laughs> <laughs> and uh i was like thanks for the confidence yeah. you know, that's pretty much dead and uh i was kind of at the same conclusion he was honestly and that flight about that same time that flight medic he took his mask off you know what his black black mask like and breathe in the wind you know up in the in the helicopter so he, take, he takes his mask off and he screams at me he goes this is gonna hurt <laughs> I kind of thought, like, thought to myself, what can you do to me at this point? You never you tell somebody me. you're yeah. going to punch him before you do <laughs> right. it. Yeah. 
I'm laying there with no limbs. Uh, you know, arms are blown off, legs are blown off. Um, I'm thinking, do what you got to do, man. You know, this is if this is your magic wand. Use it, you know. And uh, he jumps on top of me and puts that deal right in the middle of my sternum, and he punched that thing right in there. And I can still feel it today. I can put my finger right on it. And that was the only place I could get an IV started on me because my veins were so empty that every time he stuck a needle into them, it would just collapse, you know? And so they said to feed me my fluids through my bones. And uh, he punched that thing in, and, that, and that's when I realized how much life I had left in me. It hurt so bad. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I'm alive. <laughs> you know, it hurt so bad. And uh, I just remember wringing that one bag of fluid out right into me. I mean, just like watching this thing just drain, you know? And I was like, and I, I, it was just like, a, it was almost like a movie, you know? I just felt myself coming back to life. Um, I felt like I could talk again. Breathing became so much easier. It was not labored anymore. Um, I could breathe again. I could talk. And what happened was, I was it was a, it was ability to get oxygen back around through my body, you know, and my brain again and stuff like that. It was it that was fluid. A, it was a legit magic wand. Yeah, it, it was felt an like. actual yeah. magic wand. Yeah. And That's by the time we landed at the airfield, I could talk again. Like I said, I could um, as told my name, my social. I was like, if he has something for my mom's maiden name, he's opening a credit card, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just remember uh, the hearing the helicopter shut all the way down. You know, we did a ton of air assaults while we were over there, and. Um, Listen to those rotors that helicopter come all the way to a complete stop and just keep getting slower and slower. Kind of gave me a chance to reflect on the day and kind of collect myself and just realize what I had made it through and, and, what, and trying to figure out what I, you know, just realistically what I had coming next, you know? And uh, they pulled me on the back of that chopper. They pulled me in the back of this truck. And uh, to my left was my anesthesiologist. To my right was my surgeon. And uh, the anesthesiologist was talking to me first. He says, are you allergic to anything? And I was like, yes, penicillin. And he's like, well, honestly, I'm not really worried about penicillin right now. But, you know, he's like, we got a lot more problems than that. And I was like, yeah, but I am because I get hives and I have no hands to itch with. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, this could be bad. You know, just, just don't hit me with the penicillin. Yeah. Whatever you, You're do scratching. It, yeah. Cut a limb off, do whatever you got to do, but do not hit don't, me with the penicillin. Don't use any penicillin. And, uh... Uh, the surgeon looks at me then in the back of that truck and uh, changed my life. Honestly, the most life-changing thing anybody's ever said to me. He looked at me and said, if you can stay awake for five more minutes, I'll promise you your life. Really? And I said, deal. But, you know, and uh, <laughs> I was like, five minutes. I, mean, I could do this for five minutes, you know? I mean, I've already done, at this point, it was about 36 minutes from the time I stepped on until the time I was back to Kandahar. And, uh, um, I just remember hearing that truck backing up, the doors in that back of that truck popping open, then pulling me out and put me on this little two-wheel cart on my litter and started hauling down the hallway. And it was like light, 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 hard right. And uh, it brought me in the operating room. I could hear Hurley screaming <laughs> next to me, uh, curtain away. Uh, he didn't want me to die alone. <laughs> I was like, thanks for the confidence, Hurley, <laughs> again. <laughs> and I was like, why do you keep saying I'm going to die, you know? And uh, I was like, hey, he doesn't even know about this bet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> doesn't even know. I'm already there. And uh, I was laying there on the operating room table. Uh, I remember they threw me on, and it was so cold. Uh, felt like, like the polar plunge. And uh, this nurse started shaving some spots on my chest, started putting stickies on me, trying to get my heart rate and stuff like that, you know? And uh, I felt so alone. I had all these people around me, but, like, I felt like nobody was really acknowledging me, you know, in a sense? You know, not that I was like, hey, will somebody say hi to me or something? But it's just like... I wasn't even there, you know? And so I want to say something. And so I looked at the nurse and I was like, hey, you know, this is the first bone I ever broke. It's something I could think to say to her. <laughs> and she's like, uh, well, you broke a lot of them. <laughs> I was like, I know, thanks. 
And uh, finally this guy comes over and he's trying to put this mask on me and uh, trying to put me to sleep. And I start shaking my head real hard. And uh, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I got to bet with a guy for five minutes. And he's like, I got you. All right, you're fine. They just breathe, you know? And I don't know if it was oxygen, gas, he's going to mix it in later. I don't know. But I was like, I'm not, not risking it. And uh, finally the doc came over and I remember him just popping up over like, you know, I'm laying on my back, just over my, like right in front of me to my right. And uh, he's like, hey man, your five minutes is up. You can go to sleep. And I was like, man, we made a bet. I hope he's... Yeah. And uh, I remember the anesthesiologist saying, count back from 10. And uh, I, <laughs> I thought to myself, no way, man. My last thought on this earth is not going to be one. And I started thinking about all the best times in my life that I've seen flash before my eyes, just a little bit ago on the battlefield. And I uh, drifted off to sleep. Next time I woke up, it was uh, six days later uh, from an induced coma. I still had a ventilator in. Um, I remember how awful I felt. Um, and I remember seeing a nurse go out of the room and I was like, Hey, never mind. You know, I couldn't do anything. And the next time I woke up, my ventilator wasn't in anymore. And, uh, my whole family was around me and I closed my eyes as fast as I could. Cause I was like, what are you guys doing in Afghanistan? I couldn't, I couldn't believe they came all, all right. the way over there, you know? Uh, the next time I woke up, my whole family was around me. And, uh, I remember when they first started talking to me, it sounded like Snoopy, you know, it's like, wah, 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 wah. And I just couldn't understand anything anybody was really saying to me. Everything was so cloudy, you know? And I was coming out of this coma and, uh, finally remember my dad catching my attention. He's like, Hey Jack, just say something. So we know that you can hear us. And, uh, literally the first words out of my mouth were, what do I have to do to get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> now he's there. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. did not want to be in the hospital. And, uh, they're like, Hey, do you know what happened? You know? And, they're like, you're in Texas. And I was like, okay, this makes more sense. <laughs> they moved me. So uh, from one time I got blown up uh, in Kandahar, they put me out there. Um, basically just did the bare minimums to keep me alive. They paid, uh, packaged me up and sent me to Bagram, launched into Bagram, um, where I started washing some of my wounds out. I had so much mud and dirt and uh, shrapnel and stuff in me. They started cleaning me out there. Um, my vitals would plummet. I'd flatten out. And they were thinking I was going to die a couple times along the way. And finally they'd get me to stabilize and they'd be like, move him, get him to launch tool. That's really where he needs to be, you know? And so I finally got to launch tool. I spent a couple days there and they really worked on me. They're trying to really get me stabilized for that flight home, you know? And launch tools in Germany. Germany. Yep. yep. And, um, so then from the, that's, that's when my family here was trying to scramble because they thought they were going to need passports. And I had no idea all this stuff was going on behind the scenes, you know? Sure. So then finally I wake up in Texas and, um, I went through 20 operations. I spent two weeks in the ICU. Uh, most of my operations were over 12 hours. Um, they saved both my arms pretty, pretty, pretty well. Um, I lost my thumb, which is probably my worst injury. Honestly, it sounds crazy, but not having that pinch on one hand is, is brutal, you know? And, uh, um, uh, the skin graft, basically the whole, my whole, my whole torso was pretty much skin graft to lay on my arms, to put arm skin on my arms. Um, I always joke, my legs didn't take much. They just needed stitches. <laughs> and, uh, um, they ended up amputating me then all the way through the knee. And then once I got to Texas, they brought up six more inches, uh, just to get a nice clean amputation on my left. And they had to do whatever they could to save, um, enough leg. I only have about a couple inches of femur on my right side. Um, and they had to do whatever they could to save that. So just like sitting and maneuvering and stuff would be a lot easier. It was just a little bit of femur and 
So I couldn't really take any more there. And so my skin had to get stretched pretty hard on my right leg. And that's pretty painful for a long time. But honestly, the, the worst pain I had all the way from through all of this is, is my donor sites for my skin grafts. That was honestly the worst pain that I had. And, uh, the hospital it felt like an eternity. And that's where I learned a lot of, um, the lessons I talk about in my book, you know, um, was in the hospital and, um, two weeks out of the hospital, then me and my wife ended up getting married and, um, I rehabbed down there for, um, a year and a half. And, um, it was a, it was a really hard time because when I woke up, that's when and started on my journey, you know, to my recovery is when I, I started learning all these lessons of like how I reacted to things really mattered. You know, all these people around me were, were watching me and seeing what, how I reacted to what was happening to me. Um, and if I reacted positively, they did too. You know what I mean? If I was like, Hey, you know what? We're going to make it through today. It's just well, one more surgery closer to being done. If I had that kind of an attitude, everybody around me is like, yep, we're going to make it through this. You know, like everything's going to be okay. You know, well, and, positivity, a positivity spreads. It's yeah, contagious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I mean, I think about all the time in Afghanistan, you know I mean? There was never a time where, you know, we're like, oh man, I don't know if we're going to make it out of this gunfight or not. It's like, this is what we need to do. <laughs> right. Yep. If we want to get out of this damn thing, you know, we need to push through this. This is what we're going to have to do. And, uh, that's kind of the mentality that I had. And when I woke up, I had to realize that nothing in my life was the same. Not one single thing. I spent 21 years living one way and nothing was the same. My dreams weren't the same. You know, I wasn't gonna be able to spend 20 years in the infantry. Um, I wasn't going to go and shoot baskets like I used to do. I wasn't going to wake up in the morning and be stressed out after work or whatever and go for a run. I wasn't going to be doing any of those things anymore. You know, I, I, my next goal was to figure out how to brush my own teeth, how to take a drink of water by myself, you know? And it's just like, I went yesterday, I was on top of the mountain that America would send me to go do the worst task that it needs to be done in the worst places. And they knew they could count on me to successfully complete it. And today I can't sit up in bed. Sure. <laughs> you know, it was a really hard thing to swallow at first, but, um, you know, uh, growing up in a, midwestern town uh with uh farm roots you know uh you know the old saying you know mm -hmm. rub some dirt on it you know like, yeah. you know we got stuff to do you know and uh that's kind of what i tell you i had like you know when i woke up in the hospital like i said the first thing i said was what i gotta do to get out of here you know and uh that's kind of the attitude that i had all the way through it you know and i realized that the first time that i everything i did in my life i did it for the first time you know and I had to realize that uh, I have a lot of patience nowadays because I had to, I learned how to learn how to have that when I was in the hospital. Um, because like, you know, when we do so many of our firsts in life, we're infants, we're babies, you know, the first time we take steps, the first time we try to feed ourselves. I mean, you might, you know, you've, you've, you've fed your kids, you know, like you try to watch them eat and you're like, dude, you need a bath. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, uh, it's like, how'd you do that with a grilled cheese? You know? Yeah. And, uh, it was just, uh, it was a really, uh, everything was new for me and I had to learn how to work through everything. And, and I remember one of the first things that I had to go through and one of the most brutal things was my occupational therapist came up there. I had my elbow was on my left arm was pretty much well put back together, screwed back together. Skin was laid over it. I was kind of working again. And he says, I always want you to touch your nose, you know? And so I had to go touch my nose and I, I couldn't do it. You know, my elbow wasn't even close. I was so far away. And I just kept, he goes, that's all I want you to do, man. Just spend time stretching this elbow out, trying to touch your nose. And, uh, I would just spend all day trying to touch my nose. And eventually I did, you know, and I was joke. I stretched my neck out way further than I ever did my elbow, but eventually I touched my <laughs> nose. But the whole goal of just touching my nose was is to eat again. I could eat again. I could drink again. Right. I could brush my own teeth. I could do that, you know, and that was huge. 
But I remember going through all that and, and it's just like, Hey, everything the rest of my life is the first time I had to jump into a wheelchair, you know, it was the hardest ever to do it, you know? And, and after I did it the first time, it just, after you do something the first time, it changes something inside your head, you know, you're like, I've done that before. You know, it's like you look at Travis Pastrana on a dirt bike, you know, nobody could ever do a backflip. Well, now there's like eight year old kids doing it daily off these little jumps because they've seen one person who was able to do it. It just psychologically changes something in your head that it, if it can be done, then well, I just need to do it, you know? So that's the kind of the things that I was going through in the hospital, you know? And, and, um, I just kept working my way through, you know, all my recovery and eventually, um, you know, got out of the hospital and all that and moved home. And once again, I was just hit with a whole new wave of stuff, you know, moving into a place that I wasn't used to living in, building a new house. Um, you know, the community is putting together for me and, and, uh, that was an incredible experience, but you know, all these things of just trying to figure, I was just constantly trying to figure out what I'm going to do. What am I going to do? You know, and I, I tried, you know, selling insurance for a while. You know, and I found out an office isn't good for me. I tried, you know, doing the dog training thing for a while. And I was like, you know, um, <laughs> this isn't for me. I mean, it's just realistically, it's just, it's just not something I can feasibly do, you know, um, for a long time. And, uh, you know, I just kind of kept going and eventually i you know, got into politics pretty heavily, you know, and, and worked on some pretty cool campaigns and stuff like that and learned a lot there. And I learned that I didn't want to be in politics while I was there, you know? Yep. And, um, uh, I just kind of kept working until I found myself, you know, through all these things, I kept learning about myself and who I was and, and where I fit in this world and how I can make my greatest impact on the world, you know? And, uh, I found that when I was on the campaign trail, I was sharing my story quite often and, um, I just kept forming it and making it better. And, and I thought, well, I really enjoy sharing my story. So then I started kind of poking around looking for more speaking opportunities and I would go speak to clubs and this and that and anywhere anybody would really listen to me speak, I would start sharing my story and working on it until I found I got to the place where, you know, I could, um, you know, become a motivational speaker and that's eventually how I got into that and that's what I do now and, and from all that, you know, we, we have our race team, which uh, we put a different veteran nonprofit on the hood every year and go out and raise awareness through that and, um, you know, we, we're just, um, always trying to try trying to make the world a better place. And one of the chapters in my book that's so important to me is, is every day is a chance to impact a life, you know, and it's so easy to impact somebody's life. It's as simple as calling a buddy and checking in on them and saying, Hey, how's things been? I haven't talked to you in a year more. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, maybe it's holding the door for somebody, you know, or genuinely smiling and asking somebody, Hey, how's your day going? You know, and, and actually meaning it and give them a, a moment, you know, and, um, uh, you mentioned uh, two one of those moments in in your book um, where somebody that you didn't really have a, a common uh, starting point with, but you just uh, ran into by chance that ended up having a pretty big impact on your life, and that was uh, Jerry Banbury. Yeah, and that was uh, through politics. You know, I, I met Jerry. Um, uh, we were um, I can't remember what the place is called. The name of Swiss and Maine, whatever the old Swiss and Maine. Oh, was. Charlie's. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah the old yeah. Charlie's. You know. We were in there listening to a guy speak in there and, and, uh, all of a sudden I realized this guy had been speaking for 10 minutes and I was sitting there talking to Jerry the whole time. And I was, I found Jerry a very interesting guy, you know, he had a very unique outlook on life. He had a lot of different perspectives to share and he was always willing to share his opinion. Uh, anybody knows Jerry, he never had a problem sharing his opinion, but, um, um, he, he became a very close mentor of mine and, um, you know, uh, he taught me a lot about life and, and, um, you know, he struggled with some things himself. He's very open about, you know, his depression and things like that. And, uh, he always said we were mentoring each other, you know, and, uh, 
yeah, I became very close to Jerry and, and, um, he definitely helped me figure out a lot of stuff in life, you know, before he left us way too early in life. But, um, he was definitely a guide for me when I got home and somebody I really leaned on and, and somebody that I learned that, uh, I found out how important mentorship in this life was, you know, um, I had been, I've been doing, I had been doing a bunch of me- getting mentored and mentoring a bunch of guys. Um, there's a lot of guys that were wounded in the time when I was in Afghanistan and, uh, we'd all learn from each other guys that had been wounded before us and back. Like, hey, this is how you do this. This is what you need to do next. Make sure you go talk to this guy. So, and so on and on. And then once I finally got back, you know, it was like, uh, you know, I found my new mentor in Jerry, you know, and, and, uh, I remember you you brought him around uh, vets court too to yeah. help out with that too, and just I think that's what stuck out with me. And you you were kind of hitting on it about um, you know mentoring other guys that were wounded to um, helping uh, provide your lessons learned from hardship to others, so it can improve how yeah. they process and go through it too. And it doesn't have to be somebody that's catastrophically wounded in service. It could be somebody that went through you know their own personal demons and trials and tribulations like Jerry did, and then look to find a younger guy that's going through his own and, and to be there as uh, kind of a light and, and help mentor. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, one of the main things to talk about with adversity is, um, looking at the people that came before us, you know, um, yeah, we look at things like anxiety today is so high with everybody, you know, and, 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 um, you know, nobody in Afghanistan really had anxiety. <laughs> I mean, living right. in the fields of Afghanistan, you know, uh, if you think anybody would have anxiety, it would be them. They have no, no police, no fire, no, uh, no heat, <laughs> yep. no electricity, no running water, no plumbing, uh, no nothing, but they didn't have any, you know? And, and I feel like, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we put our own mental adversities on ourselves of, uh, we worry about things that don't really need to be worried about. We have no control over certain things that are in life, you know? And we have to let those things go. You know, I mean, if, uh, if I worried about every time if my wheelchair was going to fit somewhere, if they were going to have something, I could do this or I could do that. It would be absolutely crippling, you know? And, um, you know, facing adversity is one of those things you have to look at the people that came before you and, and all the things that they faced. And like I said, like you know, there are times I look at my shoulder and my arm and think, you know, the guys in the 101st airborne division, what was, you know, the guys that came before me and how much harder they had it before me. And, and, um, that makes it, knowing that somebody's done it before you makes you believe that you can do it too, you know? And I think looking at through the lens of, uh, not trying to, uh, downplay what you're going through at that individual time, but looking at somebody else's, Hey, they were going through a rough situation and they pulled through and, and made it too. And, and that perseverance mentality definitely has to be a, a learned behavior that perseverance and pushing through isn't something that everybody's born with. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like how easy it would have been for me to quit, you know, I mean, laying in a hospital bed, having all four of my limbs blown off, who would have blamed me if I was like, hey, I'm just going to lay here for a while. Right, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like, yep. who take would have been like, take oh, a really, really, you know, take a burrito and a margarita and I'm <laughs> yeah. just lay here. You yeah. know, I mean, really, I mean, who would have blamed me? But, um, you know, that's not what life is about is just trying to get by. Life is about going out there and 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 making those memories. So when your life does flash before your eyes, it's worth watching. But. You know, I think about, like I said, how easy it would have been for me to quit. But the thing that keeps me driving on, the thing that everybody needs to find in their life is, is, is for me, I think about the guys that drug me off the battlefield that day. They're running through a hail, hail of bullets. Uh, they knew there was other IEDs out there in that field. There was ICOM chatter saying that. Um, and they risked their lives to save mine, you know? And uh, before we went, before we ever met in the Army, we never knew each other. 
you know um we didn't owe each other anything um we just had this relationship built on war you know and uh i think that if i were to come home today and to lay in bed or feel sorry for myself for a minute i think about my best friend that was killed over there i would have loved to help this little daughter but mainly i think about the guys that drug me off the battlefield that day and what a slap in the face it would have been to them had they gone through all of that to save my life for me just to come home and waste it you know and never ever really truly chase the true under meaning or understanding of what life really is about today you know and to me that's you know creating those experiences being with the people that you want to be with you know and surrounding yourself with people that are trying to do great things you know i mean that's why i found myself like in the veterans court you know that's where we, you know we've built a lot of our friendship was based on on uh, it sounds horrible but other people's hard times our friendship was built on that and i was trying to pull them through that you know and um you know whether it's the trap shooting team you know and trying to help you know um these kids try to understand more than that life is more than just shooting you know it's it's uh the people that you're shooting with on the field you know these are your classmates you know people that you spent you guys were all forced to come here <laughs> through for 12 years you know and do this thing you know but in a weird way, you've all found a really awesome time to bond together going through all those things, you know? And, uh, you know, I kind of realized while we were in Afghanistan that life really has so little to do with things, you know? The joy is in the journey, really, you know? it's. I was at the basketball game at the NCAA championship up in up in the cities when they had it at the U.S. Bank Stadium. And I got to go to that game. It was Texas Tech, Virginia. And Virginia ended up winning the game. It was a great basketball game. Remember all the Virginia kids were cutting the net down and these kids had the biggest smiles ever on their faces. And I thought, how can these kids be so happy right now that most of them are never going to play organized basketball another day in their life? You know, I mean, uh, how can you be so happy? It's over, <laughs> you know, like the one thing you love is over. And I started really reflecting on it and I was really thinking about a heart and I realized that the joy was in the journey. That's what it was all about. It was, right. it was all the waking up early in the morning and going to the weight room before school and going to school all day with your friends. And then after school, going to basketball practice till who knows when, and then the nights you have basketball games, you're on the road and it's a late night ride homes with your friends and it's all the missed shots and it's all the makes and it's all, all this stuff all adds up, you know, and there was a lot of really probably bad times. There's probably times where they went on a three or four game losing streak and this and that. And, but at the end of it all, when you're cutting the net down, which I look at as a metaphor of our lives, you know, as we're, as we're cutting our nets down, um, there's only one way to be able to smile while we're cutting our nets down and then the only way to do that is, is, is to find the joy in this journey that we're on, you know, do the things that you love. Don't wait, go do them now. If one of my friends is like, Hey, the fish are biting. And I'm like, I'm on the way, you know what yeah. I mean? Like you don't yeah. have to, you know, um, because well, life is so important. We have to be, we have to be able to create these memories as much as we can because, you know, and I look at things with a little bit different perspective too, because right now my body's holding up. I can go do these things or whatever, but at some point in life, it might hurt too much to be able to go and do these things. So, I try to get the most out of life every minute I can. And I kind of live with a, with a saying of, you know, eat your dessert first, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I understand that too. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, a, a big thing, uh, just listening to you talk and reflect on that process is, I mean, finding and locating that next new mission and you had that passion, uh, to serve others. And then I, I think that's one thing that comes out of the military that a lot of people don't uh, understand is that, if it's a good experience and it's done right, uh, there is a, a lifelong desire to serve others, you know, service above self and, and to the community. 
and then to to find that next mission where you can focus efforts it sounded like you uh, wandered around quite a bit to find out what uh niche it was that you yeah. could help and you could give back on and the same thing like jerry did for you i mean you had no other you know shared beginning right. or understanding but he took time to, to help mentor you and and pursue that and so now you're doing the same with whether well, it's killing trap shooting or veterans that are in a, a hard issue or yeah even with your motivational speaking and that's got to be pretty fulfilling for you um to to help people along those lines yeah i mean um i've always felt like i've always kind of been a person that likes to help others or serve others or make the world a better place in in general you know after i got back from Af- Afghanistan, you know, I had mail cart, literally it was a joke on my floor because I get so much mail in my hospital room, you know, and I had so many people pulling for me, you know, and, and, um, when I got hurt, you know, these people all supported me and gave me and my family a place to live, you know, and, and, uh, um, there's so many people that stepped up and, and, and helped and, and support me. And when I came back, I thought, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was in debt to these people, but I wanted to, to show them that I was appreciative, you know, of everything that they did for me that I, that that me going over to and everybody would say you know you going over to Afghanistan and getting blowing up is is, is what we're showing our appreciation for you know and it's like well now I need to show you appreciation right. for your support you know and um, I found ways in doing that of like you know helping out with the veterans court you know um, doing all the chili fest you know I never every year like I was back that I was going on I was helping out you know and all these things you know anytime that there was a fundraiser going on for anything you know or if i could go and speak at tita for the troops to help out i would you know and i always just take every opportunity i can to go out and 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 be a part of uh, the community and make the world a better place i take every chance of that i get and i do it well and i I think the that lesson of you don't have to look at big grandiose things on the national stage The, the most positive and direct influence you can have is in your own backyard and your own community there's people out there right now that that need that helping hand that need that volunteer coach that need a volunteer firefighter that need somebody to mentor them not even veterans court on family or drug court things on that that line and uh, people that are transitioning out of of poverty from homelessness and housing there's all kinds of uh, opportunities out there and uh, to be out there in front and center like you are in the community and, and pushing that message that's not just the the incredible experience you had, but the continuance of service right. and the joy that that brings back to you too. Not just the joy it puts out to people, and it's a two way two way street. Sure, you're putting out and you're receiving at the same time. I think a lot of people that get stuck in that negative mentality or that um, you know the world is so so terrible. Uh, that first step, that first positive step identify a small target where you can right. improve your fighting position or well, your I battle would, position. I was just going to say, too, you know, the name of the show is uh, Strength from Service, and I think, and you've, you've kind of hit it on the head, Jack, with your story, is that you have to find your own strength first before right. you can provide strength. You have to find your own path before you can help someone down their path, and that's, and that's part of it, and I, I always, I You've kind of. I, I was anxious earlier to ask you this question: Did you find your strength from serving, or did, was that always inside of you? And I think it was a little bit of both. I think some of that strength was there, uh, but the the catastrophic injury, which is a really technical way to say it, I think it, it kind of brings it home. Yeah. That's what brought it out of you. Yeah, you know, when, when you like, get blown to shit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a better way. That's the way to say it too. Yeah, I mean, and, but like, would that have ever come out if it hadn't have been for this part of it? You know, I and mean, like I always say, I think everybody always has it in them i think everybody really has has it in them right but 
it's what you do to get it out. You know what I mean? I think the military is really good at getting that out. You know, and, I, and people go, I don't know if I could do what you, if you, you know, if you, you know, go through what you've been through, man, or whatever it may be. And it's just like, you don't really know how tough you are till you gotta be, you know? And, uh, you know, I mean, um, the army's just really good at pulling it out of you, you know, and you just kind of find you get put in positions that, uh, you have no choice but to, to but to succeed, you know, and, and they, I mean, just first couple of days in the army, you know, they're running through these obstacle courses that are just literally built to build your confidence, you know, and you're walking on this beam 45 feet in the air and, and you're like, what if I fall? Well, don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, it'll hurt, you know, and, uh, you know, you just start, you know, believing in yourself and you start doing those things and, Army's really, you know, you're like, why are we doing this stuff? It just doesn't make sense at all. But all of a sudden it's over and you're like, oh, I get it now. It was, this is, this is, they're making me tougher, you know, or whatever it may be, you know, but, uh, and, and I think the openness to, to, to do the attempt or do the challenge. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people get, uh, set back by the possibility of failure when a lot of, uh, military first responders, um, when you're doing your training, failure is an opportunity to learn and improve. It, well, you know, it's part of the process. Yeah. <laughs> we know that something's going to go wrong. Yeah. We just already know that, you know, and it's right. just we, but we believe that we're going to be able to shoot our way out of it. Yep. You know and, what I mean? And, and if, if I, if I screw it up, I'll, I'll talk to people that I care about and I'll reflect on it and I'll be better next time I get that opportunity. Absolutely. And it's kind of like my, my, my book, um, you know, I don't want to ruin the ending too much, but you know, it goes basic training is kind of how it wraps up, you know, and, and, uh, when you're done with your basic training, you know, in the infantry, in the army, uh, it's probably different than the Marines, but maybe it's similar. I don't know. But, um, we go on this last couple training exercise out in the woods and, uh, you know, you're out there for a while. You're, you've been a base training for so long. It's the hardest thing you ever done in your life, you know, and so far, and so far exactly. Yeah. And you're like, man, this is brutal, you know? And, uh, I remember we have, then you have to walk, uh, up the stairway to heaven and you have to get when you get there that's where you get your cross rifles punched on you up there and you have the ceremony and stuff and and um you're in the club you know it's like one of the most uh no matter what you do the rest of your life nobody can ever take your cross rifles away you know you earn these and um on the way there i remember one of my buddies was struggling really bad and uh i remember the platoon sergeant he goes i just don't think i can go anymore the platoon sergeant goes you're this close and you're gonna give up now you know, and he's like, I just don't know if I can go anymore. And the platoon sergeant says, we do me one favor right now. He says, yeah. He goes, take one step. <laughs> the guy takes one step and he stands there and he goes, all right, do it again. <laughs> he takes one more step. He goes, all right, now just don't stop doing that to get there. Yeah. <laughs> you know just what I mean? Going, yeah. And it was just kind of like, that's the truth, man. You know, you're thinking, man, how am I going to put a thousand of these steps together to get to, to the gates and get my cross rifles. You know, I just got a thousand more steps. Go, how am I going to get there? And then <laughs> you're like, it seems so unsurmountable. You know, you have all four limbs blown off. How am I ever going to get there? And it's literally just <laughs> one step at a time, you know, and for a guy with no legs, it's a, it's a, it's a weird analogy to right, use nowadays, right, yeah. but really that's all it is. It's, it's just every day you're struggling. You just have to remember, I just need to make it that one more step, one more step. And before, you know, I'm going to get to where I want to be, you know, and the refusal to quit, is what's really going to take you there at the end of the day, you know, and, and just focusing on what you want in this life, going and getting it and refusing to let anything stop you in your life. You know I mean? I have everything in my life that I feel like I could have ever had stacked up against me up to this point. I've had stacked up against me, but, um, there isn't, there's some been so many things I've had to gone through and accept and whatever it may be that 
now I wake up every day and looking at my list of things that need to know I need to get done and just knowing that I'm going to accomplish that because there's nothing that can stop me anymore because of all the stuff I've been through. Sure. Perfect. And, and, uh, you know, with, with that, I mean, coming back home through that, that attitude, that service and a lot of the stuff you do, I know it's, it's pretty, um, important to you and we, we don't talk to about it a whole lot so far, but I know being a father is, is yeah. huge for you with your, your two boys. And, um, you know, what, what do you think, uh, the, the boys are, are seeing out of you in that daily life that, that you live with the service? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, I'm already getting them involved in stuff, you know, I mean, whenever I go out and coach trap practice, uh, I just try to give them the smallest responsibility to start out with in the beginning, you know, Hey, when those guys are done shooting, you go pick up shells and, and if you don't pick up more than everybody else, don't let me catch you now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You better be working hard, you know? And I mean, I just, I mean, we set the standard, you know, and, um, we, ex- we, I expect you to meet that. You know what I mean? I expect you to see you carry, picking up more shells than the kids that shot them, you know, and, and stuff like that. You know, every fundraiser we go to, uh, with the race team, uh, they're seeing veterans come down to the pit all the time and introduce themselves. And, and, um, you know, they understand that when we go out and race, we're not racing for, for warfare. Warfare stands for something bigger than warfare. You know I mean? When this whole thing got started because somebody tried to honor my service on a race car and I thought it needs to be about something bigger than myself. And that's what warfare started from. And my kids understand that too. We're not doing this, um, because it's good. We're doing this because it's, it's, it's going to make the world a better place. It's not just good for you. It's good for everyone. You know, that's why we do the things that we do. And, and, um, you know, uh, I think we, I think the military guys raise their kids with a different level of what we expect. You know I mean? Uh, if I tell you to go do something, I expect a yes, sir, you know, and, uh, so on, you know, but, uh, no, with the, I expect him to live a life of trying to help others because this is what we're supposed to do in this world. We're supposed to be helping each other out. You know, that's what, that's what humans are. That's what humans do, you know? Yep. Well, you and your wife are, are definitely setting that example for your yeah, kids and not sure. just your own kids, but other people's kids that get to see you both in the community volunteering uh, and doing the great work that you do. So excellent. So, yeah, I think that's probably a perfect spot to wrap it up. Yeah, so, for uh, sure. uh, one of our hosts, Jack Zimmerman, our guest today, uh, telling us his story and strength from service. And thank you for that service. And more importantly, that strength and that demonstration of strength that I think, you know, everybody can see. And that's, uh, that's, what's really important. So well, thanks, Jake. Thanks, Mike. I, uh, uh it's uh, been great in here. I love sharing my story. Like I said, um, I look forward to doing uh, many more of these with you guys. Yeah. Now go take your kids fishing. <laughs> yeah. Get, get on out of here. Let's do that. Yeah. So remember, you can check out the shows uh, online, of course, every week and also on our podcast online at KTOE.com and any other place you find your favorite podcast.